0: This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Dr. Carl Bamlett, The Modern Caveman. A show that helps you to reshape your modern life using wisdom from the past.
1: Welcome to the Modern Cave Man. Where this week we're joined with Rebecca, um, but from Nourish Therapy. Rebecca, thanks for coming.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: You're welcome. Um, let's tell us talk a little bit about your business and what you what you do.
0: Yeah. Um, so, firstly, my name's Rebecca Barnard. I have started a business called Nourish Feeding Therapy, mm. and it was started. From from a need that I found in the community to support children with feeding challenges mm-hmm. um, because I found that there was just no one really here to support that um, I can talk a little bit more about the feeding challenges soon but it's really just summarizes children who can't eat who don't right. want to eat and don't know how to eat um, which is a lot of children <laughs> yeah. and it uh, really impacts a lot of a lot of Areas of children's lives. So it's quite a big need. So that's, I guess, why I've, yeah, how I've come to start my business.
1: Mm. Sounds good. Mm. I can imagine that there are a a wide array of things that do get uh, lumped into this category and kind of that you have an impact with. Give us kind of a a broad overview and then kind of break it down into more Mm. um, individualized Mm. categories.
0: So I guess feeding challenges in itself have been going for. Literally since the cavemen days, they've yeah. been going forever. Um, but we've had two new diagnoses come up in the last probably five or ten years mm-hmm. that have really broadened feeding therapy and made it, you know, what it is. Yeah. Um, so I can. there's two diagnoses. The first yeah. one is called ARFID. So that's okay. avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Mm-hmm. And that was diagnosed, became a diagnosis in 2013. And that really is children who have a fear of food. who are scared to eat and stick with a very small, safe range of food. Mm -hmm. um, And they don't want to expand that. They really just have a fear of putting anything in their mouth. Um, So that was sort of the start of feeding therapy, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we had a new diagnosis, which was very exciting, at the end of last year, so just October last year, um, called paediatric feeding disorder. And that's really, I guess, the categories that I work under. So that's broken into, there's four, I guess, criteria, Mm -hmm. the paediatric feeding disorder. So it's any child who has any medical complication, and that's any medical complication, um, that might stop them eating, or that any time they do eat, it causes pain. And if I If something hurts while I'm eating, well, then I'm not going to eat because (laughs) that's that's painful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, So the main ones that we tend to come up across there with medical is reflux and constipation tend to be the main two that come up. But it's really any (laughs) medical factor. So that's kind of, I guess, our first category, if you like. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we've got nutritional groups. So any child who's lacking in one or more main food group. And then we have... It's called feeding skill, and it's basically it's it's a bit of a complex one in the sense that it relates to anything that we need for eating. So Mm -hmm. our oromotor skill, we need our body position, our muscle tone, uh, you know, our sensory processing skills, the cognitive ability to eat. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of factors. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that would be into. a very complex, as- complex aspect. Of it.
0: Very, very complex. Yeah. Um, so that tends to be, I guess, the main part that we that we work with is what is stopping the child from from actually eating. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last category is kind of psychosocial dysfunction; they call it, mm-hmm. and it kind of just means anything else that could stop a child from eating. So that might be a choking incident that they had, any form of childhood trauma, or experience that's happened in their life, um, really just any, anything else that might mm-hmm. stop a child from, from eating. So those are kind of the, I suppose, categories that we, that we work under. And when a family come to us for an initial assessment, we're really just working through that and trying to work out what is it that's stopping the child from eating. Okay. Making it difficult.
1: So these two diagnoses came around in 2013 and 2021. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So what was going on before that time? What <sighs> kind of what was like the backstory behind?
0: We were just working with these children who just weren't eating, okay. <laughs> and there was there was no real guidelines and structures around it. We had obviously obviously approaches that we still use now, but they really came from just experienced therapists who had practised it for years and gone, oh, actually, this really works.
1: There's rhyme and reason to what we were going to do.
0: Yeah, but we had no real diagnosis to go on, which was a bit tricky. (laughs) Um, But now that we've kind of got a bit more clarity, it's quite nice to to work around because we've got a bit more of a framework. And one thing I really like about paediatric feeding disorder in particular is that it's taken the blame off parents. Yeah because I guess before that, there was so much blame on parents when a child wasn't eating or was a fussy, quote mark fussy eater. It was, oh, the parents are to blame here. They haven't, you know, they're just serving them this food and they're not doing ABC. But what Pediatric Feeding Disorder is saying is actually there's some reason Mm -hmm. that the child isn't eating. You know, multiple factors have maybe led to that. But there's something that is stopping the child from eating. So it's actually been really nice and we've seen a big shift in the industry of taking that blame and pressure off parents Mm. to go, actually, there's something more. And when we kind of work out what it is that's stopping the child from eating, parents and everyone involved kind of go, ah, that makes sense. (laughs) That makes sense and everyone kind of, not relaxes, but has a bit of ease knowing what it's causing that. When there's an
1: answer to what's going on, it's a lot more mm. able to be dealt with than no answer at all. Exactly. Yeah. So that's that's a very interesting. We'll get back to that a bit mm. again later. So tell mm. us a little bit about your story and what brought you into this line of work and what makes you so interested and passionate about it.
0: Yeah. So I firstly studied as an occupational therapist mm-hmm. um, up in Hamilton and always knew that I wanted to work with kids. Mm-hmm. It's just always been something I wanted to do. But unfortunately, when you finish study... In New Zealand, they like you to have experience before working with kids. Yeah. Um, so I found myself moving to Australia to get that experience, yeah. um, and it was it was fantastic. I got such a great experience there working with kids. And then I remember there was one client in particular that I had who he had about four foods in his diet, and I was just so I don't know why, but I was just so interested. I thought, what can I do here? How can we get him eating? more than four foods. So I just kind of started looking into it and kind of found everything that I know now and um, went to, there was a specialist feeding clinic over there and just kind of asked them, can I come see what you do for a day? And ended up working there, (laughs) falling into, yeah, this uh, specialist feeding clinic over there. And it was just fantastic. I, I love food. I'm such a foodie myself. So I thought I get to talk about food, eat food, play with food all day. I think this will be okay. <laughs> I think this job will will be fine. Um, and then global pandemic kind of pushed me back home. I kind of was just ready to come back home and started looking for work and feeding therapy, and there wasn't anything because we don't really whether we're behind everyone in the world or we just haven't haven't got it here. Yeah. um so yeah, thought there's a need here, and I really need to address this so. Started my practice.
1: <laughs> when did you get back into the country?
0: Uh, it was the beginning of last year. Okay. So it had to quarantine and <laughs> all that fun mm, stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then started business shortly after that. Excellent,
1: mm. excellent. Mm. Um, so parents have out there, they're hearing a little bit about this going on and they're, mm. they're, they're thinking, okay, well, I've been to these people, these people. Why do they need your service? Mm.
0: I guess because, like I was saying, it's feeding therapy is so new yeah. to New Zealand, the word is kind of just starting to yeah. to get out about it. Um, and we are very different, obviously, in the sense that we've kind of specialised in, hmm. in food. Um, but within that, we still address so many underlying things of all the things that we've talked about and will talk about, mm-hmm. um, all those underlying sensory, oromotor Etc. Um, we we sort of address all of those. And I guess food is just such a big part of everyone's life. Mm-hmm. You know, we're eating for the younger kids in particular. Food's being offered five to eight times a day. Mm-hmm. And if a child's not eating, that's five to eight times a day where the parents are feeling defeated, overwhelmed, don't know what to do. The children are placed under stress, don't know what to do overwhelmed um that's that's a lot yeah. that's a lot and then it obviously impacts we see and we see when food improves sleep improves behavior improves concentration engaging with friends kind of everything yeah. really yeah. um so obviously that's a biased opinion but yeah. I just think food if you've if we can get that sorted then other things just fall into place Absolutely. it's I guess crucial. <laughs> mm, very, mm. very sound.
1: I think there. Mm. Um, when you're going through this, and people have been dealing with this for two, three years with their child, or maybe a previous child that had a similar problem, they've been dealing with it for ten years with that mm. one. How can you help? They may be a little bit mm. thinking that there's no hope. Yeah. How can how can you give them a bit of help, a bit of hope? What yeah. are these, What are some? You know, mm. What do you have to offer on mm. that?
0: I guess for those families that have been going through this for years. Mm-hmm. It might be something that I like to do, but actually just listen to their story Mm -hmm. at the start and have them feel heard. Because I have so many parents and it's no one's fault, but they go, I tell all these health professionals all these different things and I don't feel listened to. But if I can take just a session or two to hear your whole story Mm. and hear, you know, even before you had children or before this was an issue, what was life like for you? What things did you know, what things happened in your life, actually getting that whole understanding, the caregiver goes, I really feel heard and I really feel trusted right now to for you to help us. And I've seen that that, that gives families a lot of hope of actually someone's listening. Yeah. <laughs> someone someone can hear me and can help me. And I guess, again, it's just breaking down those, those factors of, yeah. okay, so you, you might have seen all these professionals what did they do and then where can we kind of still see the gaps and still see the things that aren't quite working and what things are are underlying and that we've missed. So I guess that's where our assessment is quite comprehensive in the sense that we need to sort of rule out everything and then especially for the families that have just been through so much and for such a long time. I don't like to overwhelm families with so much, so many strategies. It's actually more just, let's do this thing this week. Then we'll do this. Then we'll do this. Rather than here's a list of twenty strategies that you could try, and they go, um, that's <laughs> overwhelming, and I don't know where to start. Let's start here, and I'll basically hold your hand through through the process. Hmm. That seems to be the most effective way for okay. yeah for a lot of families because it's 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 there's nothing more heartbreaking than a child who doesn't eat and seeing your child who who doesn't eat so yeah. having that voice and someone to listen to you can be pretty powerful
1: excellent mm. you talked a little bit earlier about the the boy from australia the the four year old mm. who had five foods or mm-hmm. they can tell mm. us a little bit more about that and kind of give a picture of what was going on there and the results you got and kind of how that kind of came about
0: yeah so he when i started seeing him He had actually been previously through the feeding service that I ended up working for. Um, He was born with a range of medical complications. There were a lot of, basically his early feeding experiences were not pleasant. So Mm -hmm. food's never been fun or enjoyable for him. It's always caused pain. Um, So he ended up with a diet of, of four foods. Can't quite, I think maybe chicken nuggets, chips, maybe pasta and... Something else, yeah. um, very, very, just restricted diet. And any time anything new was offered, it was just refused, pushed to the side. Said, "No, that's yeah. not, not today. No, not going to yeah. happen." <laughs> um, so what we also found with him was he was really what we call sensory avoidance. So didn't like to touch anything. Never did messy play as a as a young kid. Never mouthed on toys or objects. Just really didn't like. Being messy okay. so that's actually where we started with him was was being messy mm. and being okay with with mess um, starting with play-doh eventually getting to shaving foam rice you know all these dry dry textures um, and then slowly transitioning that to more challenging things and then into food um, so that's actually where we where we started with that and then as you could see he got more comfortable when we started bringing in food it was still just the play we never asked him to to eat anything because he was so anxious about mm. eating anything so we never asked him to to eat anything and then we started getting into cooking and that slowly turned into trying things when we were when we were cooking flour icing sugar cocoa powder anything started going in and around the mouth which was amazing and then eventually got to tasting those foods that we that we had cooked Mm. that took a long time though (laughs) that took a a very long time because of his medical history you know he had a nasal gastric tube at one point um so because there was essentially so much medical trauma there we had to build trust first because if you don't have trust you you don't have anything (laughs) um so we really had to build that trust with him first and that I wasn't going to ask him to eat anything that he didn't feel comfortable eating, um, which I think is a really big one for even a take home message is is we need trust first before we can taste anything and the more we ask someone to taste something, the less they (laughs) will want to taste it. Um, So we have to yeah, kind of make that that clear Um, but we got there eventually and then I guess in therapy he was doing so well but at home the, the transition to Introducing this to meal times was—we were getting there. Yep. It was definitely took a little bit of time, um, but we again had to build trust with the parents as well and give them slow strategies to start to introduce. And we eventually got there, <laughs> but awesome. it took took a very very long time, just given the history that he that he had and the absolute fear of food. Mm.
1: When you get to the, re- the the results that you're looking for, is it? typical results or does it kind of have a a limitation to the results that that are gotten then?
0: Um, I think it's just very different for each family and different for each child. We often see sort of waves, Mm -hmm. I guess, of one week there's five new foods and then, oh, we might lose a food, but then it comes back up. So there's very much a wave. Um, And I guess in terms of, yeah, the results, it depends on a lot of factors really how much how often we can see them, how much we can see them, what the other factors are around that. But I guess we determine that based on the goals we set at the start. So if the family's goal is to be able to sit at the table together for dinner and we get there, fantastic. Hmm. That's that's huge. That's amazing. And then if we obviously start to get new foods and the family says, I want twenty new foods, okay. Let's work on twenty new foods, <laughs> and we will do what we can to to get to to that place but there's obviously life happens and it tends to go in waves of of progress yeah. it's I would like to say it's a nice little steady incline of
1: <laughs> most things most things are nice yeah,
0: no no um when we have global pandemics and yeah. you know things that that make that wave even school holidays make that wave wave tricky, so we just go at the family's pace. Yeah. Okay. Another yeah. thing
1: you talked about with that, with that, I mean, was the, the making a mess, and mm-hmm. and you have a blog on your on your website, and one of the things is uh, when your when your topic is you're making a mess. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the importance of that with with kids and learning to eat, and kind of the the background around it, and why it is so important instead of I mean, beyond just having fun and doing that. So tell, tell us a little bit. Yeah,
0: about that. it's. Such a huge topic and there's so much research and evidence around it. Um, basically, when we're young, so sort of you know from three months really, mm-hmm. we are exploring the world through our senses and our the main senses that we're using are our hands and our mouth. Mm-hmm. So that's why we see babies always putting things inside their mouth because mm-hmm. that's how they're learning. That part of that brain is developing through, learning and exploring my environment. Yeah. Same goes for food. That's how I learn and explore is I need to feel this mashed potato all the way through my fingers, all the way through my hair to know what that feels like. Yeah. And I guess we don't... When we're first learning about food, I don't want us to worry about manners. We we, we don't need to learn manners at six months. You know, yeah. That could be something we, we learn down the track. But actually we can all now mostly eat these foods because we know exactly what that texture feels like. Mm. We've felt it in every sense of our of our yeah. body, basically. Yeah. Um, so it's so, so important that kids are messy. And it's really, really hard for, for some families and completely understandable where mess is not something that they like. Okay. <laughs> mess is, you know, we like to keep a nice, t- tidy household and... And fair enough. Uh, But from a long-term perspective, children need to be messy with that food. I see a lot of children now who they were never allowed to be messy with food. And now their diets really restrictive because they never got to experience what the food actually feels like Mm. when they were younger. Um, Because also when we feel a food with our hands, that's why I actually quite like (laughs) eating with your hands, the same receptors that we have on our fingertips are the same ones in our mouth. So when we feel a food and it feels good, hmm. it's likely going to feel good in our mouth. But if we haven't had that opportunity to yep. to feel it with our fingers, our mouth has no idea what it's what it's going to feel like. Is that
1: do you guys call that mouth feel too then, or is there a different yeah. term in your yeah yeah yeah. It's, yeah
0: mouth feel and just the receptors in our mouth are just yeah yeah they get the same feedback. Mm. Excellent. Mm. It's really a big topic. <laughs> mm.
1: Another thing it says in here is the, the cleaning when they're in the mess and um, mm. becoming and the kids will become distressed when that starts to happen. Mm-hmm. How big of an impact is that side of it when, when the parents are really hammering the, the being clean with
0: it? And, a big impact. Yeah, big impact, a really big impact. Um, yeah, so that's sort of talking about, you know, let's say we, we allowed the child to get messy and yeah. food's everywhere. But then as soon as they're finished, or maybe during the meal as well, we keep wiping their face and mm. wiping their hands. That's actually creating a really negative feedback for the for mm. the child because they've had so much fun feeling this texture, mm. but then it's just been wiped off my hands and hasn't felt really hasn't felt very good when it's been wiped off my hands. So when we're constantly wiped by a caregiver mm. with with you know a cloth or something throughout the the meal, it just reinforces that actually someone's telling me that this doesn't feel good. My body says this feels good when mm. I when I touch it, but there's an external thing telling me that this is not this is not safe and it's not good and I'm not supposed to be doing that. So very quickly children go oh, okay. Well, last time I used that food and then I got cleaned up, so I just won't bother with that food. Because I, it, it was cleaned up last time and it didn't feel good. Yeah. So there's a food gone. And then that process kind of continues until we're down to foods that don't make a mess. Crackers, chicken nuggets, hot chips, foods that are together. There's no way that they can make yeah. a mess. So seems small, I guess, when we're doing it. We, some of us don't know that we're doing it. It's not blaming anyone. It's just... You know, a lot of us that's how we were brought up as well. Our faces were, were wiped. But it starts to really restrict the food when we go, Oh, I ate that food and I really enjoyed it, but then it was there was this horrible experience afterwards. I'm not gonna eat that again because that's gonna happen to me again. Um, so what I like to say is let the mess happen throughout the mealtime. Don't worry what's on our hands, what's on our face, and then Let's say the child's in a high chair or something, take them out of the high chair after the meal and then wipe them down. Okay. Because that's a completely separate experience. You've got the enjoyable food play mealtime here and then taken out of the chair, we then clean up. So it's a completely separate, we're not associating that feeling mm. with mealtimes. times. Mm. Excellent.
1: Mm. Some is a very good and there's several other good topics on your website in the in the blog area, so people should go check that out and mm. look at some of the other ones. Do you have any other topics or future topics that might pop up on you?
0: I do have a lot of topics coming <laughs> up, yes. Um, I guess I just want to create a space where there's information and education out there mm. rather than parents having to go through, I shouldn't expect a parent to go through hundreds of research articles. I'll do that for you and just summarize it in a nice little nice little blog Um, but yeah I'll try and cover most topics good good Mm, mm. so
1: these these parents out there may have um, may have went down paths looking for help Mm -hmm. Um, because you know you're relatively new and they may have went down other paths and they may be getting lumped into some of the other categories of people saying oh it's just just a phase or Mm. this or that in your experience with the parents and how were, how do you differ and how did their results differ with someone doing what you do compared mm-hmm. to some of the other kind of typical information that they've they've received
0: mm-hmm. I guess what it comes down to is potentially the knowledge and experience of the person that that they saw yeah. um, what I see so with the two diagnoses that that we have are often missed. Diagnosed and yeah. diagnosed by the wrong people, um, so and not
1: someone in your line of work, maybe a, a general practitioner that the family knows or something who's not as familiar with it.
0: Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, for example, pediatric feeding disorder can only be diagnosed by an occupational therapist or a speech language therapist mm. who works in in the field, yeah. and Alfred can only be diagnosed by a psychologist who again works works in the field. Yeah. But obviously, those labels are thrown around by anyone, <laughs> really. Um, so I guess that's kind of where it starts, is is knowing the diagnosis inside out and actually differentiating what, what is the problem. A slightly scary thing for me with ARFID is that's often misdiagnosed. And so ARFID is the fear of food. There's mm-hmm. nothing else that's really happened, maybe sort of choking incidences or something, but there's no physical... Thing that's happened, that means a child can't eat. Mm. But that's not often looked at. They've mm. just gone, oh, they, they have five foods and they don't want to try anything new, they must have ARFID. And the the treatment for ARFID is more down the sort of cognitive behavioural therapy yeah. approaches, which is great. That helps with the fear of food. But if a child has no oral motor skills, if they mm. can't move their tongue and that process doesn't happen how it's supposed to. They might not have a fear of food anymore, but they still can't manage food. So there's yeah. there's you know they go okay. Oh, well, I'm really happy to try this food now, but I don't know how to you. I don't know how it moves in my mouth. Mm. Um, so there's that kind of for me. Uh, yeah, I struggle. <laughs> I'm trying to get the education around yeah. that as well. as is actually can we rule out paediatric feeding disorder first? And is there something there that actually the child cannot do? They don't have the skill to do and we need to teach them the skill or is it the sensory processing things that we need to address first before we go and give a diagnosis of, of ARFID? Because very different, very, very different approaches and yeah, completely different therapies but are often Crossed over and and misdiagnosed. So I guess that's where we come in and try to. I guess sometimes I feel like I'm a bit of a detective trying to mm. to work out what what is going on. And you know, any, another health professional might have the baseline skills, but because we're focused on food, yep. that's what we do. We we're going to explore and unpack food and really find out what's what's going on. Yeah. And to to deal with something.
1: It. 20, 30, 40 times a week, you're going to be much more skilled at it than somebody who does with it once a month.
0: Exactly, exactly. So it's nothing that they have or haven't done. It's just yeah. this is this is what we live and breathe. <laughs> we, yeah. we, yeah, exactly see it every single day. So hopefully we know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, so... We heard the one success story that you had. Um, would you be able to share another one just so people can have a little bit more kind of understanding of kind of how, what they can expect or if they fit into the category of people that you might be able to
0: help? Yeah. the Probably one of the most exciting parts of my job is getting random messages and photos and videos from parents saying, oh, this is the new food we've got this week and this is the new thing that's happened this week. And it's, it's always so exciting when we get to that stage of, oh, that's great. That's a new food, mm. and that looks so different for everyone. So for one family, it might be a different flavor muffin for the week, and that's huge. Mm. Or for another family, it might be we were able to mix foods together. That's huge. That's fantastic. Probably one that's come up recently that was incredible was a boy that we were seeing who he was a um, was born premature, had. Lots of complications because of that. Lots of, you know, low muscle tone and physical body things, bit of a speech delay, things going on. Um, And lots of medical, underlying medical things that we weren't quite sure exactly what it was, but we knew that there were things happening. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyways, we were able to get him to a paediatrician who said, yes, there's constipation that's really quite intense and we, we need to get onto it. And so before then... Therapy was going well. He was starting to interact with things, starting to bring things. He wanted to smell every food, you know, bring everything to his mouth. That was really, really great. Um, Once we sorted the constipation, I think within a week we had seven new foods (laughs) in the one week because we had sorted constipation. There's obviously still a long way to go and we still need to learn how to move foods. But now that he's not in pain and that we were able to actually identify what was making food really painful and difficult, he's now just accelerated, and it's so fantastic to see, but also highlighting, yeah, he must have been in a lot of pain (laughs) beforehand if if he was so, so blocked up, essentially, and we've now released that. He now wants to try foods. We still need to, like I say, practice with foods um, because our oral motor skills need a bit of work um, and we still need some work around but there's still things that we need to do um, but just something so seems so small has made such a big difference for him Mm. and that was just purely with us investigating and working out what it was that was causing that and that had never been picked up by anyone else Mm. he had seen lots of other professionals about it and had never been picked up that he his constipation might be causing feeding challenges mm. a, <laughs> yeah to look. yeah <laughs> absolutely another one um that's very common is uh tongue ties yes um uh, hugely undiagnosed and often often missed i have a, a girl that i've been seeing for a while who she's only when i first started seeing her she was only munching foods it was only foods that i didn't have to chew so no meats no fruits no veggies because i can't I have to chew those foods, yeah. whereas other things just kind of dissolve in my mouth and go down. I don't have to chew. And she had been going to um, at the public fooding, feeding school for a, a while now and had a little bit of success, um, but they hadn't actually looked in her mouth and mm. never looked in her mouth to see what was happening. And I said at our initial assessment to mum, can I, you know, have a look? And we lifted it up and her tongue was so <laughs> restricted. Yeah. She, she couldn't actually move her tongue side to side. You know, your tongue's supposed to be able to touch your back teeth and her yeah. tongue couldn't do that. So, of course, food was going to be scary and, and hard. And mum was even, when we worked it out, she goes, oh, that's why she couldn't breastfeed either, because she couldn't, you know, the tongue yeah. was restricted. Yeah. Um, so that was huge. So now that we're even starting to practice moving our tongue, foods are starting to come in. And we're talking about whether to release or not to release, which Mm. is a whole nother... (laughs) I'll do a blog post on that because it's a whole nother nother topic. Um, But we're at least starting to move her tongue and she's now starting to do what we call a rotary chew, which is how we should chew. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Moving foods to the side of our teeth and round, which is so exciting. She's never been able to do that before. She took a bite of a plum the other day, which was just... Parents were just Mm. like... Complete shock. Like, what? What? What do we do in this situation? We haven't. No one's told us what to do. But it was just so exciting. But no one had ever looked in her mouth. So
1: you've talked about uh, feeding tubes and early medical de- interventions. Mm. Are they a big part of what mm. you see in your line of work? And is there a thought process as to why that is? Or? Yeah,
0: hugely. Um, a lot of children who are born premature. Um, yeah, often end up having either an oxygen tube or a nasal gastric tube. Um, We see it all the time, and the research says that, again, that's coming back to that early experience of food being painful and uncomfortable. And I essentially had someone, although they had to at the time to save my life, had to do some really uncomfortable things to my mouth and nose. So now, and there's also a thing of... uh, some people will say, oh, they were just an infant, they won't remember. They do. They, they remember that pain and that, and that feeling. So for them, this is a hugely, hugely sensitive area for them because they've had tubes and a whole lot of painful things happen to them there from that point of view. So, yeah, we see a lot of children who have had tubes and been... Um, born premature coming with issues uh there's also with the being born premature lots of reflexes aren't quite developed how they're supposed to our suck swallow breathe coordination often isn't coordinated Mm -hmm. um yeah a range 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 of underlying things really that that makes food tricky so yeah we unfortunately see lots of children who were, were born premature and are coming with feeding challenges yeah, for a range of different reasons, so it's huge. Mm. Mm. So,
1: so people at home are listening, parents are listening, interested in in what you do. Are there any ways where they can get assistance to come see you? Is there help out there for them? Mm. What, what what do you can you offer on that? Inside?
0: Yeah, it's something I'm continuing to work on, as well as getting a few more funding sources, um, even insurance. They haven't recognised occupational therapists there yeah. yet, so we're working we're working on that one. Um, but there are a few options. so there's obviously ACC for some children who have access to ACC. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a funding. it's through a company called LifeLinks, so it's canterbury wide. Each state had their uh, region had their own um, funding stream, but we have a so a place called Lifelinks, and they offer individualised funding, and so that's for a child with a diagnosis. So it might be a diagnosis of autism, um, you know, speech delay, or something else that's impacting their life. I am hoping now that we have the paediatric feeding disorder diagnosis, and it's one that I can diagnose, mm-hmm. is that that will be recognised. In the funding as well. Um, so basically with the individualised funding, they the family will go for a needs assessment and the needs assessor will say, okay, you need to meet ABC goals, we'll give you this amount of funding and then you can go and use that funding to meet those goals. Um, so obviously if a goal is feeding, well then you can come and see us on your individualised funding for feeding therapy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my hope is that the paediatric feeding disorder diagnosis can is recognised um, through individualised funding. So, because it's only a new one, came out last year. I'm working on that. Um, but yeah, I want to make it as accessible as I can for for families, so that they know there's there's options <laughs> options out there. Mm. Good. Mm.
1: So in terms of numbers of kids that deal with this, do you have any kind of statistics or percentages or amounts that kind of are are, are affected or impacted by this?
0: Yeah, so there was a recent study that came out with the latest statistics. Mm. So for children with autism, 90% of children with autism will have a feeding challenge as well, which is incredibly high. Um, The majority of that comes down to sort of the sensory challenges of it Um, but for just our general population it's about one in four children will experience a feeding challenge in their childhood. Um, Majority of them come from start from birth or you know when they first start solids even breastfeeding as well Um, but yes one in four it's (laughs) very very high and it's often the kids who are you know it's just fussy fussy eating but doesn't improve. And that's what you said before of, oh, they'll just grow out of it or, you know, it'll just get better. But for some, yes, because all children will go through a fussy eating phase, um, but it's particularly when it's always been an issue or it's been an issue for more than, you know, more than six months or so, that's when it's not, no longer just a fussy eating period so it's it affects a lot of children and a lot of families
1: is the 90% of the autism does that include the whole spectrum Asperger's ADHD mm-hmm. whole mm-hmm. the whole thing
0: Mhm, the whole thing
1: yep it's really so that's pretty rampant then, because there's a lot of those diagnoses currently
0: absolutely yeah. absolutely so yeah that's a huge huge population that, that we do see and it's yeah like I said sort of the sensory things the routine mm-hmm. the need for consistency, and food is not consistent no. <laughs> food is in no way shape or form consistent our packet food, yeah. that's consistent, fruits, vegetables, meat far from consistent every mm. single blueberry is so different to the last, whereas my packet of potato sticks, they are all exactly the same, <laughs> so it kind of makes a little bit of sense yeah. in, in that aspect, so it's yeah, a huge population mmm
1: wow. mm. A lot of good information today. So I want to give some of those people at home a bit of an understanding of something that they can do and give them help and see that, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're in this. What are some of the a tip that you give as a very first tip to somebody you come across that you might be able to share mm-hmm. um, and just kind of say, OK, this is something that might be able to get one little extra food or one something little change that might just be a benefit?
0: Yeah. So obviously, before anything is doing our investigation piece to find yeah. out what what's causing that food. I don't want to just put a band-aid on it yeah, with, yeah. Yeah, with yeah. things, but finding out what, what's caused that. But yes, there are very much some things that I think every family should be implementing. The first one seems seems simple, but it's it makes a huge, huge difference, mm. and that is getting them in the right seating. So we don't really notice as adults because our feet are often always on the floor. But if you were to lift your feet up, your core would automatically have to switch on. So you're essentially doing a, a crunch mm. <laughs> the whole time. And we're asking our children to do that at every meal when they, if they don't have the right foot support or the right chair. Mm. We're asking them to engage their core. But actually, when I engage my core, my jaw tightens so I can't let food in when, mm. when I'm in that position. So the very, very, very first thing I'd want any family to do is to get either a footstool or there's some chairs called a trip trap or a mocha feeding chair. And basically what we want is for a child's hips, knees and ankles to be in sort of a 90 degree, 90 degree angles, based mainly to give them foot support. When they're supported, my core can relax, my jaw can open. Mm. That's, Really, where I think every every family should be starting is is with seating. Um, I guess that then means eating at the table as well. Mm. Preferred. <laughs> it's preferred. Wow. It's definitely definitely ideal. Um, the second tip, and I don't want to overload people with too many <laughs> things to do, um, but there's a a practice that we use really really strongly it's called the division of responsibility and by a lady called alan setter if we can stick to our responsibilities feeding goes well and that is so parents have a job at the table and children have a job at the table the parents job is to decide what food is on offer where it's going to be eaten and when it's going to be eaten so dinner is six o'clock at the table we're having tacos the child's job is to decide what they eat, if they eat and how much they eat, which is really tough yeah. <laughs> to do in a, in a practical sense, because what we want to do is, oh, take a few more bites, take a few more bites. Oh, try this, try this. We're then controlling the child's role, vice versa, with the child saying, I want this now, <laughs> it, you know, is a common thing that we see. Hmm. So that's where it would be. in a perfect world, is if the parents can stick to their responsibility of saying, no, I'm in charge of what's on offer. As long as I know there's something you will eat, there always needs to be a safe food Mm. on offer. But I'll I'll decide when we're eating, where we're eating, and what we're eating. You then decide if we eat and how much we eat, which is easier said than done. (laughs) But (laughs) that's kind of the, yeah, where I'd recommend starting. Mm. I have a
1: question for you from my yeah. own personal experience, based off that. And so, <laughs> when me and my wife are discussing with our with our daughter, is um, if she's not eating that? And I say the food's there; it's good food. Mm-hmm. She likes that food. Mm-hmm. She just doesn't want to eat it tonight. She must not be hungry. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes we both agree. And sometimes it's well, I don't want her to go without eating. She might be up tonight. What is your take on that? What do you, mm. what do you what do you say along mm. those lines of your your philosophy?
0: Like you've said, it's a food. She'll eat. Yeah. You know that she likes. You've kind of done your job. You've set it up. You've you know, you've set it in the middle of the table. <laughs> it's all ready to go. It started in the middle of the Start table. Started in the middle of the table. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, if we choose not to eat, we choose not to eat. It's, it's a really tough one because we don't want them to go hungry. Yeah. But what you'll then see is the next night we go, oh, okay, I was really hungry last night. I'll make sure I eat tonight it's it's not not a cruel in any sense of the word it's just actually we have to learn that if we don't eat then we we're hungry and Mm. this is a food that I'm I know I'll eat so if we choose not to eat we choose not to eat that's (laughs) yeah very tough to to do but you always see the next night is oh okay yeah I was I was hungry last night so I'll I'll eat tonight <laughs> kind of thing. And right. there may be some reason why, again, she might not want to eat that day. Maybe something happened at school or I'm in a bit of pain, blocked up, something happened. So, again, it comes back to well, why, what, you know, what's underlying that, what's causing us or wanting us to not eat tonight. Mm. Mm.
1: Are there any foods that kids try really, you know, like really strong flavors or something that really puts them off that people shouldn't allow them to do. So like for instance, I like mustard. My daughter wants to try mustard when she has mustard, she doesn't particularly like it. huh Is there anything that that sets people back or sets kids back if they try it or is that does that not exist?
0: Uh, to an extent. So again it comes back to each individual yeah. child. So that will come down to your sensory preferences. Mm. If you're what we call a sensory seeker you will want the spicy foods, the bold foods, the mustard, the big flavours, yeah. and you'll just want, you know, those are the flavours that really regulate you. Mm-hmm. If you're a, what we call avoider or sensitive, then those foods will be tough. Yeah. They will be really tough for you to, to try. Um, we might be able to slowly start with something a bit more mild and increase that, but um, but it really just comes down to each child's sensory preference. Makes sense, makes sense. <laughs> yeah, so she she's happy to if she wants to dry the mustard, amazing, but for her that might be a bit bit much, yeah. bit overwhelming.
1: Seems a bit much and then comes back for a little more and then it's bit much and just <laughs> unrepeated occasionally. Yeah. Well,
0: it's like it's like wasabi. If we go for sushi we're like, yeah, we'll try some wasabi today and then we forget that we tried it last time and it was really not pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we but we just keep drying because sometimes we forget. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Rebecca, thank you for joining us. That's all
1: the time we have for today. Um, so, people who are out there listening are probably screaming at the, at the podcast or the radio <laughs> saying, uh, How do we get in contact with her? So, tell everybody yeah. about how they get in contact with you
0: and what they do to find you. Yeah. So, probably the easiest way is just through my website, which is just nourishtherapy.co.nz. Um, the same on Facebook and Instagram is probably the easiest way to, to, to get in touch with me yeah. these days. Um, but, yeah, so just nourish therapy. In what area of yeah, town do you practice at? Uh, so I go and visit children in their homes because um, I find it's easier. If they
1: already have sensory things, yeah. <laughs> want to bring them to a new place and they can get used to that.
0: Exactly. If, if the food is already the tricky part, well, then let's just keep the environment safe and focus on the, on the tricky part. So I can see people wherever. Um, I also do lots of telehealth. So if a family's out of town, I can yes. still see them. Through the magic of telehealth.
1: (laughs) And a phone number that they can reach you on?
0: Uh, Yes. So a phone number would be 027 273 7677 would be the easiest phone number. Perfect.
1: Thank you very much, Rebecca, from Nurse Therapy. Thank you for having me.
2: My house in Budapest, my, my hidden treasure chest Golden grand piano, my beauty focus E.O.U Ooh, you, ooh, I'd leave it all My acres of a land, I've achieved It may be hard for you to stop and believe But for you, ooh, you, ooh, I'd leave it all over you, who you, i I leave a door. Give me one good reason why I should never make a change. Baby, if you own me, then all of this will go away. My many artifacts, the list goes on. If you just say the words, I, I'll hop and run over oh, to you. Ooh, you, ooh, I leave it all you. Ooh, ooh, I leave Give me one good reason why I should never make a change. change Baby, if you owe me then all of this will go away Ah. Ah. My friends and family they don't understand They'll lose so much if you take my amber for you, ooh, you, Ooh, I'd lose it all. Ooh, for you, ooh, you, Ooh, I'd lose it all.
0: And give me one good reason why.
2: My, my hidden treasure chest, golden grime piano, my beauty, Focus castillo. You, you, I'd leave it all. You, Ooh,
1: you, Ooh, I'd leave it all. You can find our podcast on Facebook at Dr. Carl Bamlett, the Modern Caveman, on the Plains FM website and iTunes. And you can get the live stream from plainsfm.org.nz or the TuneIn app. On behalf of Carl Warty I'm Dr. Carl Bamlett, chiropractor at the Alpha Omega Clinic, reminding you that you can't change from within on the outside looking in.
0: Thank you for listening to Dr. Carl Bamlett, the Modern Caveman. For more healthy lifestyle tips, find Dr. Carl on drcarlbamlett.com and like him on Facebook. I'm Pascal Batrick, signing off for Dr. Carl Bamlett, the Modern Caveman.